the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. The winter savings continue at Linden Sheet Metal. The holidays are over, but it's not too late to buy a gift for your home and save money while doing it. Linden Sheet Metal has furnace, air conditioner, and heat pump discounts up to $900. Utility rebates up to $1,500. And beginning January 1, there are tax credits up to $2,000 off. And it doesn't end there. Showroom fireplace models are discounted 40%, and new fireplaces are $300 off installation. The benefits of a new energy-efficient fireplace, heating, or cooling system will help you save on future energy bills and can increase the value of your home. Call Linden Sheet Metal today to schedule a free estimate. Our consultants will come out and find the best solution for your home. We also offer easy financing with low monthly payments. Now is a great time to upgrade your home. Linden Sheet Metal, serving the Northwest for over 80 years. It keeps your workers warm. It keeps your heavy equipment running. It keeps your customers happy. Propane. Let us take the pain out of propane. We'll make sure your tanks are full so you don't have to. Skagit Farmers Supply provides safe, efficient delivery service for business, agriculture, and residential. Visit them today and see how they can keep you warm this winter at SkagitFarmers.com. This is Steve Berger, Lead Counselor and Director of Contact Counseling Recovery Services. Despite being a fourth-generation Whatcom County resident from a solid, established family, when I was struggling with alcohol and drug addiction, my family didn't know where to turn to help. By the grace of God and a recovery program, I was able to get sober and have devoted the last 34 years of my life helping others find recovery from addiction. If you or a family member is struggling with substance abuse, please contact us at 360-671-3277 or contactcounseling.com. The headline. Proposed biomethane plant in Sunnyside, Washington, could bring benefits. But, shocker of shockers, Environmental advocates have concerns. Oh, so basically, this is not the the first time we've heard this. The, the, The format here is farmers plan to do something that's good for the environment, but it's not good enough for the activists that have to uh, try to pretend all the time like they actually care about the environment, but they really just want to um, oppose anything that particularly dairy farming and a lot of other farming does. That may be a bit of a gross um, uh, oversimplification of it, but really, sadly, it rings true too many times. Here we go. Again, proposed biomethane plant in Sunnyside could bring benefits, but environmental advocates have concerns. Not good enough, they say. And we'll get into why. And uh, actually, this calls for, I believe, because what we're talking about, proposed bio, you know, this is manure digester uh, material that we're talking about here. We know about this here in Whatcom County, and they do some of this on the east side as well, and they're talking about a really big effort to do that. And, and they're not talking about just producing electricity. They're talking about taking that methane and then, you know, 
putting that into the system, like burn it like natural gas, you know, run trucks on it or, or you know, who knows exactly how all the system works. But it sounds like a great idea, right? Nope. Uh, environmental advocates have concerns. So what this calls for is a little bit of a science lesson this morning on carbon and cows and how it actually works. And sadly, we're having to tell this, you know, blowing back against people who say they're all about the science, but really it seems to be not scientific at all. Joining me right now with the Washington State Dairy Federation, uh, Jay Gordon, welcome to the program. Jay, first off, you're quoted in this article that I just read the headline from the uh, Yakima Herald. Uh, and generally, they're, they're talking basically about doing a big project out there. Again, this is still just in the planning proposal stages over in Sunnyside to basically, yeah, capture a lot of methane from the dairy farms manure out there and do good things with it, right? Absolutely. And good morning, Dylan. Thanks for being here. So explain, you know, uh, environmental advocates have concerns right off the bat. Well, of course, who do they go to? And somebody we've talked about before on this program, Gene Mendoza, friend, a volunteer with Friends of Toppenish Creek. This is, a, this is a frequent flyer over there. Anything that a dairy farm ever does is uh, in her crosshairs. Um, she's raised a lot of fuss over there over the years, caused a lot of heartache, um, and has a clear, biased bent, and it's not based in science. But she says that uh, this could be a bad thing. How? What's what's really going on here? How, I, this is about taking methane out of the atmosphere and using it for something good, right? Yes, it is very much. Explain how the project would work. So first, let me answer your question about Gene. Yeah. Um, you know, it, anytime a dairy farmer does anything good, it doesn't matter to Gene. She wants the dairy farmer to leave, mm-hmm. go away, stop, go out of business. That's her goal. She's stated it right to the face of our dairyman in Yakima numerous times. Her answer isn't solving problems. It's she wants them to go away leave, die, yep. move to Argentina. I don't, it, who knows? And do what? Know drink, she, drink oat milk and eat tofu I, or? D- d- we don't get that far. She just wants the dairy farmers gone. <laughs> so, yeah, it, the, the conversation doesn't last a long time once yeah. somebody says, I want you gone. And that's my solution set. Um, so, yeah, let's, you know, let's dive into the, you know, what this plant and what digesters actually are doing. And so, you know, jump in, Dylan. Well, yeah, okay, they're talking about, like, we summarized, and, and we know about this here in Whatcom County because it happens to a certain degree. You capture the methane that's produced when you store cow manure, and instead of just releasing it into the atmosphere, because that's a concern for climate change, it's capturing it and using it for something, right? And 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 I don't know if, you know, I sh- I'm remiss here that I haven't followed up on what was going on with ethylene uh, up here. If they were capturing actual biomethane or they're still producing electricity there with their generator, which, which route that they've gone. I know there was talk of that. But this is kind of the newer concept of taking these manure digesters, right, and, and actually using the methane itself to ship it elsewhere for people to... F- fuel things, maybe trucks, maybe other things. So, so there's really two pathways. You, you obviously start, you know, you start with the methane, um, 
you know, maybe I need to back up a little bit sure. here. So you want to have a science conversation? Yeah, well, let's let's, have, let's have the science lesson with Jay Gordon okay. right here. Okay, let's start with a simple first, which is, you know, what farmers do, and it doesn't matter whether you're a dairyman or a wheat farmer or a tree grower or whatever, apple, berries, raspberries, you know, what we do is we utilize, basically we're a solar system. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we grab the sun, yep. uh, we use photosynthesis to make, uh, corn or wheat or raspberries in Watkin County. You don't forget about the blueberries. I, I, I'll have the yep. blueberry farmers mad at me. Yep. No, but we'll go with the blueberries <laughs> as well. You, you, you take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere with photosynthesis and you make carbohydrates, sugar in the case of blueberries and raspberries, starch in the case of corn silage. Mm-hmm. So on a dairy farm, you make that cor- you grow that corn silage by taking carbon dioxide out of the air. You make a carbohydrate. You make corn. Corn goes into a cow. She makes milk. You know, and uh, maybe you, maybe you make and, and some meat. You know, a, an average cow in Washington makes about twenty five hundred pounds of cheese. If you're in Sunnyside, so you get twenty five hundred pizzas. You get some meat, and then she makes manure. And what methane digesters do is they say, okay, um, we're going to take that manure and we're going to make sure we catch the methane coming off that manure. And we're going to either, uh, well, mostly what they're saying is we're going to use it to catch and, and provide a fuel, natural gas. It's a renewable natural gas. And when you burn that methane, that, that one molecule of carbon, four hydrogens, you make water and carbon dioxide, and the cycle starts all over again every year. That's what farmers do, is they take methane, or they take carbon dioxide and sunlight and some seeds and some fertilizer and some water. They grow things, but really they're pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, putting it into food, and then at the end of the year it goes back into the atmosphere, and you start all over again. And it's been so, going since time immemorial. <laughs> since farmers were invented. <laughs> to, to use a favorite term, um, and again, we're yep. talking with Jay Gordon with the Washington State Dairy Federation uh, right now. Uh, it started with a kind of a funky headline and, and interesting um, activist pushback against something that something good that farmers are trying to do over in Sunnyside, dairy farmers, something that farmers, some farmers here in Whatcom County are already doing. Um, but it prompted kind of the need for a science lesson on, on this whole idea of Carbon dioxide. So, just uh, not to belabor the point too much, but what we're talking—you're talking about two different things here: methane and carbon mm-hmm. dioxide. They're both greenhouse gases, right? But methane yep. is like twenty, sometimes more potent or or bad as far as being a greenhouse gas. Methane is is twenty five times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, and it lasts about ten to twelve years in the atmosphere. So it's a fairly short lived gas, and it breaks down to carbon dioxide eventually, yep. right? But it does more yep. harm before yep. it does that. Yep. So you, you methane is not good, and and right. and so you know, twenty five years ago, everybody said to dairymen, you guys need to put your manure in lagoons. You can't be running it out on honey wagons and, and spreading it willy-nilly and, and yep. having it run down into the oyster bed. So exactly. put your manure in, in a lagoon and protect the environment, do good things, and then use it for fertilizer in the in the spring and the summer. Well, when you do that, a lagoon produces methane. Well, 25 years ago, nobody gave a darn about methane. Now, really coming out of California, mm-hmm. they've said, you know, if you could catch that methane and destroy it, and whether that's to, you know, catch it and burn it in a flare, catch it, scrub it, 
put it in a pipeline so a, a, a truck could use it for fuel, a renewable fuel, or whether you could put it in an engine, which is most of what your Whatcom digesters are doing, yep. put it in an engine and make renewable electricity out of it. Oh, okay. And so that's really what this is about in Yakima. They've been doing it in California. They're doing it in Oregon. It's spreading. You know, Europe is, has, has an amazing amount of digesters in Europe. Um, you know, may have something to do with we'd rather get natural gas from, from cows and from corn than from some guy named Putin in Russia. Um, <laughs> yep. it, you know, just there's a little national security issue in, uh, yep. you know, Germany and Denmark and Norway and Finland. And, yep. and and so let's let's find a different source of fuel. And, you know, whether we're turning cow manure into methane or using food waste and putting it in a digester to make methane. You don't want that methane to go in the air. You want to burn it and put it back into CO2 so that you can start that whole cycle over again every year and grow food. And, and, then and, the, and the carbon that's in it came mm -hmm. out of the air to begin yep. with. As you explain that cycle, carbon becoming carbohydrates within a plant, animal eating the plant, making food. You know, in this cycle that you're describing, the, the food that's produced by the animals is just a byproduct then of the system. The energy mm -hmm. that's produced then if methane is burned to basically mm -hmm. destroy it and turn it into carbon and water then that's another byproduct and the cycle continues. It's not new carbon entering the atmosphere. It's carbon that had already been there, unlike yep. fossil fuels. Yep. Yep. It's not 200 year old carbon that was put in the ground, you know, pick your epoch. I mean, yeah. it, 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 farmers are doing your, your every year, you know, on my farm, I'm I'm growing wheat and I'm growing corn and I'm growing grass and I'm growing alfalfa. And every year that those plants are pulling the carbon dioxide out of the air, making those products with photosynthesis. We harvest them. I mean, most farmers probably don't think this way, but really it is, it's a solar system that says we're yeah. going to capture solar energy, make carbohydrates, make protein, make feed. You know, we call it hay or, you know, meat Silence. and milk, yeah. uh, manure. And then you do it all over again. And so this is really, you know, what Yakima and what California and Oregon and Washington are really starting to ramp up more and more. We've got digesters, obviously, in the state that have been here for 20 years, 25 years. But with the, you know, with the new programs out of Washington and, or, uh, excuse me, out of Olympia along the West Coast, they're saying, we want you to make more um, renewable fuels. We want you to make more electricity that's renewable. We want you to make sure you're not releasing you know, highly potent gases like methane, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 that's what we're doing. So, that's, if you think about it, back to you know this not being new carbon in the system. That's that's why there's so much that's ridiculous, really, about the accusation about the carbon footprint of beef and dairy specifically, because they're saying, well, there's all these cows, and they're producing all these greenhouse gases. When in reality, it, all those greenhouse gases are just a product of carbon that was already in the atmosphere, went into plants, went through the cycle that we just described. And even prior to cattle being here, there were huge herds of, you know, bison and other ruminants who were doing the same thing. And you look at the numbers, they're actually fairly similar, if not larger, uh, those natural populations from eons ago doing the same thing. The only difference here that we're talking about, again, like you described, is storing manure, which didn't happen for eons up until 20, 30 years ago when it really became a, a thing with, again, a, a specific good environmental purpose and a nutrient management purpose. 
purpose, but that's created the methane thing. So here we're doing something to try to mitigate that, a problem caused by a different solution, and it's not good enough yet, which is what's so frustrating. Again, uh, I'm Dylan Honkoop here. Uh, ranting just for a second on the farming show with Jay Gordon with the Washington State Dairy Federation. So here's the whole cycle. Here's the whole problem. Um, then uh, what what to be done about this? What what what's the issue here? Why why would anybody have a problem with it? What's the real argument? Again, I'm just I'm you know. Uh, some people just don't like people keeping animals, I guess. Uh, they don't like dairy farms. Um, you know, everybody's got a right to their opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I really look at this as simply, you know, farmers have been providing food for a long time. This is another way to provide a fuel source that um, reduces the climate impact uh, of, of storing methane or storing manure and, and, and releasing methane, which for 25, 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, I own a lagoon on my farm that's right at 50 years old. It's a great lagoon. I love it to death. Must it's be a, one of it's the originals, lagoon. man. Yeah, it's it's a great lagoon that, you know, it's been used to store manure and, and fertilizer. And, and it's a great tool on our farm to make sure we're cycling nutrients every year. But, you know, lately everybody's going, Can we want you to manage it a little differently. We want you to either catch that gas or reduce that gas or flare that gas or, you know, not let that methane get into the atmosphere and, and um, it, it, you know, reduce the greenhouse gas impacts. And so, you know, Olympia has spent a lot of time passing a lot of legislation over the last couple of years, as has Oregon and California and, and the United States and Europe saying we want you to do things a little differently and it's and, and so when somebody says oh my gosh you know you farmers you're doing something different but it's not good enough we want you to just die and go away yeah it's a little disconcerting but at the end of the day you got to go okay humans still have to eat they still need farmers <laughs> everybody that i know still likes ice cream and cheese on their pizza um yeah well, and the, so we've got to figure out how to feed people and make fuel. And California dairymen have really been very successful in that. And, um, yeah. So, well, G, the quote from Gene Mendoza, again, the activist that we talked about earlier, this is in this Yakima Herald article where the, uh, the environmental activists are expressing how the good thing for the environment that the dairy farmers are planning or hoping to do is not good enough for them her quote was quote if we didn't raise animals in concentrated animal feeding operations and store manure in anaerobic lagoons we wouldn't have methane emissions in the first place she said the only methane we're capturing is what's produced in manure lagoons so what's her solution there if you think about that there is no solution to that well she's saying we shouldn't be raising animals in concentrated uh, animal feeding operation, ca ca CAFOs or CAFOs, depending how, on how you pronounce it. Well, I call then, it a then, barn. Then, then what would you do? You'd have tr animals um, out in the field pooping near the stream, and not you wouldn't have control over the, those nutrients and potential contaminants. You wouldn't have control over the, the, the pollution concerns there. That's the whole reason those anaerobic lagoons that she despises exist in the first place they're also there to protect groundwater which she has made more of a fuss about than anything over the years yet she wants those to go away which would make the problem where it just doesn't make sense 
Um, to wrap up, though, before and we're almost out of time, explain what's going on in, in Olympia right now, just in a nutshell, as far as furthering this conversation, not in the direction that these activists want, but in something that's actually beneficial, um, both to the farming community and to the environment. So, you know, I think we've got the luxury. This session is going to be a lot of fun um, on this topic. You know, California has led the way. The voting is done. The cap and trade and cap and invest programs in Washington, the low carbon fuel standard are now state law. They've been in place for a couple of years. They're being implemented this year. Um, and, and we're really into implementation. Voting's done. The arguments are done. We're going to go this way. And agriculture, you know, really looking into California's experience has a role to play, and especially dairy and, and livestock. But, you know, I think the rest of agriculture also has a role to play in how do we farm uh, and reduce our impact on climate gases? How do we farm? And, you know, farmers can do things that most people can't. If you live in an apartment in Seattle, you can't sequester carbon by increasing organic matter on, you know, two, five, six hundred acres, a thousand acres, yeah. five thousand acres. Yeah. If you're a wheat farmer, you can do things that the rest of society can't. And what I see is 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 this system really does set up a system that says, Hey, I live in Seattle. I would like to have renewable energy. I'd like to have less carbon. I can't do anything in an apartment building, but I'll pay the timber farmers or timber growers and the farmers to help produce a renewable fuel to sequester and reduce their carbon emissions. Um, you know, let's incentivize that. That's really what California has done. We have the luxury of looking to California. I'm working on legislation right now that really is mirroring what California and Oregon have done. Um, and for farmers, this is an opportunity. As I said, we get to do things that, you know, we feed people, but we obviously get to do things like have the ability to increase our carbon sequestration, reduce our carbon footprint, whether it's catching methane or, or um, you know, reducing the fuel in our tractors or fertilizer. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a nice position for farmers, yeah. actually. This will be weird. But it's a great message that farmers can do things to help in this effort that a lot of other people in society yeah, far, can't. Farmers need to be the environmental heroes here rather than the environmental bad guys. When you look at the actual facts and step aside from the PR, the activists, the anger out there that's been drummed up when you look at it by people with totally different motives than what uh, appears yep. on the surface. We're out of time. Jay Gordon, keep up the good work. We're going to be touching base with you again, I'm sure, as this, as you talk about this legislative session is just about to start. There's a lot to come on this, um, and it sounds like cool things are, are in the work, so we'll, we'll need an update as we go. Jay Gordon with the Washington State Dairy Federation, uh, thanks for your time this morning we appreciate it thanks dylan you bet dewey griffin subaru is driven by one simple concept if we all give a little we'll all have a lot these days the dewey motto rings truer than ever kindness care and safety have never been more important that's why subaru and the team at dewey griffin are doing their part to keep you and your loved ones safe while driving need a new subaru stop by dewey griffin and learn about special ordering locally from dewey griffin subaru you'll get to build your own subaru with all the new options you want and you'll support a dealership that supports our community from the ascent to the outback from the forester to the impreza and the all-new crosstrek a subaru 
from Dewey Griffin will get you and your family where you need to go safely. Need service? Dewey's Express Service Center is fast, convenient, and there's no appointment necessary. At Dewey Griffin, get the service you need when you need it. And they'll throw in a free car wash with any service. Dewey Griffin Subaru. Community-minded, community-driven, and the only Subaru-certified tire and service center in the county. Lindale Glass is your premier window and door company in Whatcom and Skagit County. With over 35 years of professional installation experience, you can rely on the dedicated employees at Lindale Glass to provide an exceptional install. Lindale Glass features Milgard windows and doors, leading the industry with innovative, high-quality products. You can be assured of a product that is customized for your home. No shortcuts, no gimmicks, just excellent service and exceptional quality from Milgard. Visit a Lindale showroom to learn more or online at lindaleglass.com. Hello folks, are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour and let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement. KPUG is the sports leader, bringing you complete coverage of the Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, and our high school athletes. We put you in the stands of the biggest games, including the Super Bowl, the World Series, March Madness, and state championships. Plus, KPUG features the best in sports analysis and entertainment, from Dan Patrick and Jim Rome to Mike Greenberg and our own Mark Skolton. If it's happening in sports, it's on. KPUG 1170, 97.9 FM, KPUG 1170.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. Recovering Salmon. Here in Whatcom and Skagit County and in Washington State and beyond around the Pacific Northwest. We know that salmon populations continue to struggle. And it's a heartbreaking thing to see. Welcome back to The Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop with you here on KGMI. Glad you're with us. Well, you know, so if, if this is The Farming Show, why are we talking about salmon? Well, I think it's become so clear to so many people in, in recent decades that, you know, what, what's happening with farming um, and what's happening with salmon, what's happening with our watersheds, our streams, land use, all of these things, urban areas as well, tire dust, all of these things are connected. And there are issues even beyond our, our land use here, our streams here, what's happening out in the ocean, what's happening way far away as we understand the life cycle of, of salmon taking them on huge long, incredible journeys through. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening 
to these populations as we see their numbers continue to, to dwindle. And, and, and our community continues to come together more and more around the idea of we need to recover these species. They're important on a variety of levels, um, uh, one of which is food as well. And, and in the farming community, we know about food. And certainly our local tribal communities, it's about food, it's about culture, history, uh, spirituality even, um, and, and the, the commercial fishing community. It's about food and families and, and producing food and managing the land and water and our resources. We're recognizing how this is all connected. So this is so important. And, you know, the farming community here locally has been more and more involved in, hey, let's, let's restore our streams. Let's build buffers. Let's um, build other habitat projects. What can we do with floodgates? You know, there's work that's happening and the more that can be done, but there's also a recognition that there's more to the story here. And this is, so this is something that we've talked about before here on the farming show. Um, this issue of seals and sea lions and other as they're technically called pinnipeds in, uh, and it's, I think it's, it's more often near shore waters than an issue way out in, on the high seas. There are other issues on these populations there as well. But this issue of, of pinnipeds, and the term here is predation, them eating the salmon that we're trying to recover. What is the balance here? And, and, and what is this part of the story? Joining us right now is Daniel Schindler. He's a professor at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. He's also uh, the chair of a study on this issue with the Washington State Academy of Sciences. Welcome to the program, uh, Professor Schindler, and, and thank you for being here. Talk about what you guys were looking into, and of course we want to get into what you have found so far in looking at this part of what can we do to recover salmon. Yeah, good morning, and uh, thanks for the invite, uh, Dylan. Um, yeah, this uh, report we just uh, published was one that was requested by the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife um, to the Washington State Academy of Sciences to basically synthesize what we know with regards to the science of pinniped predation on salmon in Washington state waters. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, science done on this topic. There's a lot of anecdotal uh, observations from users of the salmon resource and people who care mm -hmm. about marine mammals. Mm -hmm. um, so we had like quite a ball of, uh, of information and data to to synthesize as part of this report. Well, and also it's become a social and political talking point for some as well. Like, oh, just deal with the seals and that'll solve the problem. I think, you know, I'm going to acknowledge, and I'm assuming that you would agree, you know, if we're talking about protecting salmon, protecting our aquatic resources, uh, environments, whatever, there is no one thing. <laughs> and and it, it frustrates me. I've said this many times on this program as well. It frustrates me when people try to present, okay, here's this one thing, and if we just do this one thing, it will solve all our problems. That's not true here, and I just want to acknowledge that from the get-go that what we're talking about here isn't the silver bullet. I, I, am I correct in saying that? Absolutely. There are no silver bullets with respect to salmon recovery in Washington. And uh, the reality is, you know, the pressures on salmon really are quite variable from place to place and year to year and even decade to decade. And uh, 
you know, any issue with respect to pinnipeds as predators um, is part of this more complex story about the salmon ecosystem. So I guess a place to start with this, you, you were looking, again, asked by uh, WDFW to study this uh, via the Washington State Academy of Sciences, where you chaired this, this study, which technically for folks who want to look it up, it's the pinniped predation on salmonids in the Washington portions of the Salish Sea and Outer Coast. What did you find? I think there's even been a question of, is this idea of seals and sea lions and, and, and pinnipeds eating salmon, is this something that's actually making a dent? Is this a real problem? Some people say, again, say this is the whole problem. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, but certainly some have said, well, we're not even sure if this is really a factor because there's a lot of other things at play. What did you guys find in that realm? Yeah, so what we did was was really tried to build a story and build the weight of evidence for answering this question about what impacts pinnipeds could be having on salmon recovery. And, you know, we need to start with what we know with very high certainty and a couple observations there. First, the uh, passing of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the 1970s has been spectacularly successful. Um, the number of harbor seals and California and stellar sea lions in the Salish Sea and on the outer coast has has really uh, exploded in some respects. You know, it's gone up several fold during the last few um, decades, the last decade or so, it's uh, the numbers of these predators appears to be leveling off. Um, but the point is that there are more marine mammal predators out there now than there has been in most of the last century. And wow. to, yeah, to further complicate that is the other thing we acknowledge and recognize is that uh, indigenous people hunted these things. Um, and it's very possible that we're seeing abundances of pinnipeds now that may actually be higher than they were 100 or 200 years ago because um, they may have been hunted more heavily than they have, <clears throat> excuse me, have been this, uh, this last century. So that's part of the story that you can't discredit. There are more predators out there now than there have been in, in mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. um, the second piece of the story, which again has very little uncertainty associated with it, is these animals eat salmon. Um, whether it's a harbor seal or a sea lion, um, we know that they uh, eat salmon throughout their life cycle. Harbor seals, for instance, eat young salmon as they leave the estuaries as smolts. Um, seals and sea lions eat uh, salmon as they come back to spawn, particularly in river mouths and at pinch points in the Salish Sea that they migrate through and where they're particularly vulnerable, as well as out there in the, in the broader parts of the Salish Sea. So we know that salmon are victims from some pinnipeds. Um, you put those two things together, and what we also know with a lot of certainty is that the number of salmon eaten by these pinnipeds has increased dramatically over the last 40 years, and it's a really big number. Um, so the fact that it's a big number is something we can stand behind. Where we start to get on thin ice is to translate that number in terms of how many fish are eaten into an assessment of what the impact is on the salmon population. Um, and that's because of the complexities of the ecosystem that salmon and pinnipeds are part of. Um, so that's where we started yeah, skating on thinner ice yeah. in terms of our ability to make definitive conclusions about pinnipeds, pinnipeds preventing recovery of salmon. 
is it kind of maybe this is boiling it down too far but it, is it a correlation versus causation question it's definitely a correlation versus causation question because we know that as pinnipeds have built up salmon recoveries have have stayed flat or in some cases even declined for certain stocks and certain species um, that the tricky part are dealing with the complexities of this salmon pinniped ecosystem because pinnipeds are not the only predator eating salmon and pinnipeds also eat other predators of salmon so then you start asking questions about well what if the pinnipeds weren't here would that mean that there would be more other predators of, of salmon um, and that's where it's really difficult based on, or it's, I would argue it's impossible based on existing data to come up with a definitive conclusion that pinnipeds are the primary reason that uh, salmon stocks are not recovered. And again, we're talking with Professor Daniel Schindler with the University of Washington. He uh, was chair of this study effort by the Washington State Academy of Sciences on pinniped predation or uh, in, I guess, more layman's terms, um, harbor seals and sea lions, and how many salmon do they eat, and how what effect does that have on the recovery of particularly the endangered species of salmon that we're working so hard you know, across our, our communities and our society here, in, at least in this region, to recover? Um, so where do you take it from there? I, I, I recognize that it, it's tough to, re like you said, with existing data anyway, and I, I'm sure there's a huge need for more information on this complex system. But even with the data that you have, you guys drew some conclusions about some of the impacts that are actually occurring here and possibly some things that could be done. Yeah, so again, we, if we stick to things that we can say with confidence, um, you know, any effect of pinnipeds are probably amplified or expressed at, at high levels in, in these pinch points where uh, salmon have to migrate through this gauntlet of predators. Those are the most likely places that these types of effects are playing out. Doesn't mean they're the only places. Um, but I, I guess one of our other important conclusions is that, um, you know, it'd be very easy to study this question to death yeah. um, by, by getting more behavioral observations of seals and sea lions, by studying more detailed, um, having more detailed analyses of their diets, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot we could do from science, but it's not clear that those types of studies would get us to the answer we're looking for or at least allow us to answer the question we're trying to, to answer here. Um, and what that's really probably going to take is to manipulate in an adaptive management framework um, the abundances of pinnipeds. Mm. And that is something that <clears throat> is a very tricky thing to do. Um, there are people who, of course, are very concerned about the welfare of pinnipeds. There are others who are concerned about the welfare and the, and the uh, abundance of salmon. Um, policymakers are going to have to navigate those conflicts and trade-offs, but really one of our key conclusions was that if we are serious about figuring out how important pinnipeds are to preventing salmon recovery, we probably are going to have to 
alter the abundance of pinnipeds. Mm. Some of this is going on in the Columbia River already, where problem individuals are being removed from places, particularly below some of the dams, where um, we know things like sea lions are really <laughs> taking out a yeah. lot of uh, migrating salmon. So I understand like the, those efforts have seen a little bit of initial success. Of course, it remains to be seen what the long-term impact is, but I've heard yeah, some positive key. things. That's key. I mean, um, some indications are that it's working, but it is going to take some sustained management effort to really demonstrate conclusively that experiments or management approaches such as that actually work. So we have to be in this for the long haul. We have to be willing to step up and take some risks if we really want to figure this this problem out. What would that look like, you know, reducing or managing the population of these pinnipeds? I I think the the interesting thing, just to step back to the 30,000-foot view, you know, with the Marine Mammal Predation Act, or Protection Act, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, in the 70s, it put basically an entire ban on doing anything as far as harvest of those animals or, or anything else. You know, if if some that already, you know, to me says, okay, there could be a lack of balance there when other things, you know, of arguably similar importance or, you know, in different parts of the food chain or the, you know, predator uh, chain, whatever the term for it might be, all, all of a sudden they own this special, very protected spot where other things may not. That's how you could see potentially things getting out of whack. Could, you know, a, a return of, of um, native, you know, uh, aboriginal type harvests be part of this? Or, or is there something where more technology is involved or even a commercial role for, for addressing some of the, what does that actually look like to manage this population? Yeah, so our report didn't get too deep into those types of details. Um, Those details would have to be worked out. Um, They should include both scientific analyses and perspectives about, for instance, how many animals would have to be removed or if other technologies were used, how, you know, in some cases there are approaches that try to scare animals away or distract them from places where they eat a lot of salmon. Some of those might work. Um, so there is a bunch of options that for things that could be done. Um, our report didn't get too deep into trying to figure out what those specific options may actually look like in a practical sense. Um, and that's something that would have to ta- be taken seriously before you know managers start start doing things. It should be informed by science. It should be informed by stakeholder yeah. uh, perspectives and, and concerns. Um, but there's distinct risks in doing nothing. Um, mm. You know, salmon are not showing any signs of recovery. As you pointed out th- at the beginning of the show, they are suffering from a whole bunch of different reasons, from climate change to uh, degraded habitat to predation by things like seals and, and sea lions. So it's it's a multifaceted problem. It's not going to be easy to, to deal with, but the reality is we have to do the science and the management at the right scales to figure this one out. I I think something that you're saying there is somewhat echoing things that we've been talking about here in the Nooksack Basin and and some of the other water management things, uh, habitat work, a lot of other things that need to be done here. 
um, that you mentioned earlier, you know, this could be studied to death, but that shouldn't be done. Um, I would think there's a time element to that, too. We don't have time to study this to death. The endangered, critically endangered, in some cases, salmon runs need help now uh, before years and decades of studies uh, can play out. Absolutely. I mean, the one reality is salmon, and luckily for us, are very resilient species, and they're on the ropes, but they're only still around because they can handle a lot of pressure from humans. Um, So we do have some time, but you're right, we can't wait around forever and pretend this problem will go away on its own. Um, We really need to start thinking carefully about how to coordinate both the science and the management on issues like rehabilitating habitat like possibly managing predators like how we um use hatcheries to supplement um all of those things need to be coordinated they need to be thought of at the right spatial scales both for local stocks but also in the broader context of the ecosystem and we have to do it for the long term we can't play around with one year here doing strategy x and another year doing strategy y Um, we need to be in it for the long term and that's how increasingly the farming community feels too. And, and more and more people are saying, let's look at all of the above. Let's not just seize on one thing or the other. This needs to be multifaceted. We need to be pursuing all potential options. We need to hurry it up and get things going because we don't have unlimited time. And I appreciate what you're saying about risk management, too. Is there a risk to doing something? Yes. Is there a risk to not doing something? Yes. So let's weigh those out and and find the better, you know, the best course of action rather than simply dismissing things out of hand, which seems to happen all too often with with discussions that end up being really too siloed on one issue or another. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, We need to be explicit about expressing these risks, both scientifically and socially, and um, we need to to grapple with how we're going to navigate through those various risks because there isn't a single factor that's the problem here. And just a couple of seconds remaining again, uh, Daniel Schindler, uh, a professor with the University of Washington's uh, School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. Uh, He's been researching things with salmon and other aquatic issues up and down uh, the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest for many, many years. Uh, Very accomplished in that realm, and he chaired this study, Pinniped Predation of Salmonids in the Washington Portions of the Salish Sea and Outer Coast at the request of WDFW for the Washington State Academy of Sciences. Uh, We appreciate your time. Um, real quick, just in, in a few seconds before we run, you know, what the, the, the things that you guys are saying in this study and the, and the whole team of you that work together, the conclusions that you reached, particularly about potentially needing to manage and eliminate pinnipeds to some degree, you know, to, to harvest animals or whatever shape that might take, is not always a popular opinion. How, how has the reaction been, just in a few words? Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, we haven't really had much <laughs> reaction so far. Um, you know, we recognized when we wrote this report and, and published it that it may strike a chord in a positive way with some people and a distinctly negative chord with others. And, you know, our goal was not to try to satisfy anyone or to piss anyone off. Our <laughs> goal was to synthesize yeah. what we know, what does the science tell us, 
And it's really up to other people, namely managers and policymakers, to decide what to do with this. You know, that's not the not the job of the scientists. The job of the scientists is to really say, what do we know and how can we improve what we know? And that's where we ended it. And yeah, as I said, it's not going to sit well with everyone. And uh, that's something we need to grapple with as a society and as a yeah. set of communities is how do we move forward with, with information like this? Yep. That's how science should be. It's not always comfortable. Uh, <laughs> and it's not a design to be. Professor Daniel Schindler, uh, the chair of this study and a professor at, at UW, thank you for being here this morning. Yeah, thanks for your interest, Dylan.